This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're here on our podcast listening to the First Word series as we walk through the book of Genesis, looking for uh, the kingdom of Christ and what uh, the Bible has revealed to us there. Uh, Before we get started, one of the things that really helps other people to find uh, the program is if you go and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this uh, podcast, uh, it really helps out a lot. I saw a review from Noah. Uh, who says, uh, Dr. Moore, appreciate how you touch on topics relevant to college-age students. And I appreciate that. Noah, thank you. And you've got a great name. Stay tuned in Genesis. We're going to get to you. Uh, so let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 126, on through chapter 2 and verse 17. If you're new to the Bible, you're, you're not familiar with the Bible, that's fine. Just turn to the first part of the Bible, the big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses. And uh, for all of us, uh, take a moment and and either read through the chapter now or wait until after we've talked about it and read through it all together then. But in this section, we're going to be talking about the creation of humanity, the the meaning of humanity in, in terms of Adam, the start of the human race and what that means uh, for the kingdom of God and what it means for us right now. I think about all the time a friend of mine who uh, called me one day and he sounded really anxious. And and this guy is normally not an anxious type at all. But he had a friend who had uh, loaned him a house that was on a lake somewhere. And, and this friend uh, knew that he was working on a big project. And he said, uh, you can go to the lake house. We're not going to be there. And he said, when you go to the front door, there'll be a plant. Look under the plant and there'll be a key and go on in and you can have the house for the entire week. So we went, found the house, found the house plant found the key, went in, moved all of the books that he was working on for the project uh, in there and worked for a while and then ate some dinner. And uh, then he he ended up, the, the people had in this house a hot tub. <laughs> and this guy was in the hot tub looking around at the, the walls and noticing all of these pictures on the walls. None of them are of the, the friends that I know. It, it's a, a different People and I don't know any of these people. And then he started to notice that there were decorations around the room for Auburn University. And he knew that this family, that they were huge Alabama, University of Alabama fans. And so he said, this doesn't make sense. And so he started to become a little bit panicked. He, he got up and he went outside and noticed the, the address number on the house and he was in the wrong house. They just happened to have a key in that exact same place under the planter on the front porch. And so he called me and said, I moved everything out. Uh, I I went to the right house, found the key, moved everything in. And then I remembered that I left a prescription in the house that I had been in. 
And he said, so I went back and got it. And I said, are you crazy? I said, you could be arrested. You could be uh, harmed if these people came back and found you. And he said, uh, well, it was okay because I waited and I kind of watched it for a while to make sure that nobody was going to be there. And then I went in and, and, and got my prescription. I said, that's called casing the joint. You're going to get arrested. But the more that I thought about it, the more that I wondered what would have happened if the owners of that house had walked in and found this completely random guy in their house in their hot tub. Uh, that would have been a debacle and a disaster. But the, the sense of anxiety that my friend felt was not just that he narrowly avoided something really bad happening in terms of a, a confrontation. It was a sense of alarm of realizing I'm not in the place I'm supposed to be. It's kind of disoriented feeling that, that you can have. And eventually, I think all of us realize that whether we like it or not, that's the sensation that we have in the cosmos around us. There's a sense in which we belong here, and yet there's a sense in which we don't. Something is wrong, and we're we're alienated a little bit. And that's one of the reasons why most people spend their entire lives working through those key questions, who am I and what am I doing here? What's my identity and what's my calling or what's my purpose? Well, the Bible starts out that entire conversation in Genesis 1, the creation of humanity as male and female, and then in Genesis 2, explaining to us in more detail what it means for God to have created this initial environment for humanity in the Garden of Eden and giving that calling in the Garden of Eden. What does it mean? So there are a couple things I want us to look at today. And the, the first of those things is dignity human dignity. This is, this is language that uh, we, we toss around a lot, uh, what it means for people to bear human dignity, what it means to treat all people as created in the image of God. But sometimes we're not really clear on what we mean when we say image of God. And so there have been all of these conversations throughout uh, Christian history and even before that in uh, the, the nation of Israel about what does it mean when the Bible says, in the image of God created he them, male and female, he created them in the image of God. Some people would say, well, what the Bible is talking about here is rationality, that, that there's uh, the ability to reason, the ability to think, uh, to, to receive revelation through reasoning. And, and that's not a crazy idea because there, there are passages in the Bible that talk about the distinction between being in one's right mind and being like uh, an unreasoning beast, as the psalmist says. Or think about Nebuchadnezzar. He, he loses his rationality, and he's, he's out in the fields, and he's acting like an animal, governed by appetite, not governed by his, his mind, by reason. But I don't equate image of God and rationality. I think rationality is is an implication, one of the implications of the image of God. But as you'll see later when we move uh, through this book of Genesis, the serpent is rational. If anything, the serpent is hyper-rational. He's reasoning along with uh, the woman in Genesis chapter 3. 
reasoning toward destructive ends, reasoning out of a, a lying spirit, but he is rational. And of course, the, the angelic order is rational. They're able to reason. So I, I don't think that that encapsulates what the image of God is. Some people would say, well, it's the uh, ability to be in relationship with God. But uh, again, uh, angels are in some sense in relationship with God. They're able to have a, an I-U relationship with God. They're not things. They're not, they're not objects. Uh, some people would say, well, it's conscience. It's the ability to, to know right from wrong. But again, I, I think there's at least something like that, analogous to that, in the angelic order. And, and some people would talk about the way that image would function in terms of uh, the way kings would set up images as uh, representatives of themselves in, in ancient cultures. I actually think that all of those things are, are pointing to aspects of what it means to be created in the image of God. But I think fundamentally, there's a mystery there. It tells us more of what uh, it is not than it is telling us exactly uh, what it is. So it's telling us there's a distinction between humanity and everything else that is created from not just dead matter, but also from the animal order, from the beasts of the field. And there's a mystery at the heart of humanity. So that as, as Walker Percy put it, humanity is not just an organism in an environment. There's, there's something there that pictures that that points to God himself in a way that the rest of the creation doesn't. And there's a calling that is put upon humanity that uh, means that there's going to be a certain degree of restlessness. Now, a lot of that has to do, as we'll see later on, with exile uh, from the garden. We're we're cut off from the source of uh, life, and so there's a sense of, of lostness. But I think even before that, there's a sense of restlessness in terms of a yet-to-be-realized calling. So God gives to the man and the woman a calling upon their lives, he says, to keep and to guard and to cultivate everything in the created order. So uh, from the very beginning, God is pronouncing everything to be good, but he is not pronouncing everything to be completed. There, there's a task that has to be done. And so when, when the scripture talks about humanity made in the image of God, that you, uh, as a human being listening to this, you're, you're made in the image of God. I think the fundamental issue here is one of sonship. Because if you look later on in Genesis, you will have children being born in the image, in the likeness of uh, of their parents. You think of, of Jesus when he's, he's looking at Caesar's coin, and he says, render unto Caesar, see Caesar's face on the coin, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God's. There is a sense in which uh, symbols matter. We, we all know that. Uh, symbols matter in ways that can be life-giving and in ways that can be life-destroying. So think of, for instance, the horror that takes place when someone uh, spray paints a swastika on a synagogue. You, you can't say, well, it's just spray paint. 
No, this is an image that means something ugly and awful and threatening, or as is the case uh, near uh, where I live, uh, someone spray painted on someone's uh, front door a target. Well, that's a threat. Uh, It's not just a, a symbol. It's not just a picture. It's a picture that points toward a threat and pointing toward that home, which is a way of saying, I'm coming after you. It's terrifying. It's, it's, it's awful. And so when you think about what it means to be a human being, that the scripture speaks later on in the Bible of your body is a temple. And what does that mean? A temple of the Holy Spirit so that God is dwelling in the life of the redeemed person. And I think we see even here, we don't yet have the the giving of the Spirit in the way that we have it in the book of Acts, but we have the preparation of humanity to receive the Spirit here. And so you see a a fundamental dignity of humanity. There's a, a picturing and an imaging of God at the same time. With all of that dignity, there is a limitation upon humanity. The the, the scripture tells you how Adam is created, and Adam is created from the earth. He's, He's constructed out of ground, and God breathes into him the breath of life. So there's a a connection here between Adam and the, the rest of creation. He's a creature just like everything else that was uh, that was made by God. And not only that, he's a dependent creature. The, the text makes really clear here, I've given to you all of the trees of the garden for food except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and from it you, you must not eat. So this is somebody who is dependent upon uh, nutrition, dependent upon air, de- dependent upon this ecosystem that God is creating for him, not just in Eden, but throughout the, the created universe. So sometimes you will have people who will suggest, for instance, that people who are uh, dependent are somehow less than uh, human. And sometimes they mean it explicitly. You think of some of our bioethical conversations about abortion, for instance, the idea that, well, a baby is a baby when the baby is viable. Well, what the scripture is telling us here is that none of us are viable. If you mean, as we say, able to live on your own, no one's ever able to live on his or her own. We're we're all dependent on a womb-like atmosphere around us. All of us are dependent upon nutrition and hydration. So there's a, there's a limitation from the very beginning on what it means to be a creature here. And so sometimes this idea that we have that the more powerful we are and the more independent we are, the more human we are, and the weaker we are and the more dependent we are, the less human we are, the scripture actually tells us the exact reverse, that you discover yourself the most in terms of dependence, in terms of childlikeness, uh, in in terms of, as Jesus says to uh, Simon Peter, you will be carried where you don't want to go. That vulnerability here is not some sort of a detraction from humanity made in the image of God. It is part of it. 
from the very beginning. And the scripture also here is making really clear that this image of God is universal when it comes to humanity. So it is God created humanity, male and female. He created them from the very beginning. And then the scripture uh, makes clear throughout the rest of the Bible, this is the root of uh, the entire human race, which means the image of God applies to everyone who is human. And that matters, uh, not just in terms of what we think about other people, but the Bible says it matters in terms of the way that we treat other people. James uh, 3.9, for instance, talks about how easy it is to, with the tongue, praise God, whom we, we cannot see, and then to use that same tongue to attack the one created in the likeness of God, whom we can see. Every human being that you are encountering is a symbol, is a picture, is a a revelation of God, and our response to those pictures and those symbols tell us something about how we are relating to God. I knew of someone one time who was catfished, met somebody online and was talking to this person online. And then, well, it actually wasn't catfished because catfished is someone pretending to be someone else and sort of defrauding you. That's not what happened. This was a good faith connection that was taking place online. But what he realized is once they started to meet in real life, he would find himself when he was at dinner with her, getting coffee with her, almost looking forward to when he would leave and go back and be texting with her. And he realized that was because what he really liked and what he was really drawn toward wasn't her. It was a figment of his imagination that he had that he had made up in his mind of her. And so he could have a, a great time thinking about her all of the time, but it was when he was really face to face with her that he just he didn't he didn't like her. Well, I thought about how often that's the case with us as human beings in terms of the way that we we can create an imaginary image of God that we can even sort of be carried away with in prayer and in worship. But often we can see how it is that we actually relate to God by how we encounter the image of God in other people. Scripture says, all of humanity bearing that dignity, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they came from, uh, regardless of, of anything else, simply based on their identity as fellow human beings, they are reflecting the image of God. That's going to become really important later on, as we'll, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. But it's not just the identity, it's also the calling. So the, the text here tells us who humanity is, but also tells us why humanity is is here, or at least is starting to give us a picture of what the calling of humanity is. So God says, be fruitful and multiply, and we'll talk about that next time when we talk about sexuality and marriage and and those things later on in, in Genesis 2, but also talks about putting everything under their feet. Some translations will say, exercising dominion 
And, and then uh, the, the text recites all of the things. And, and, and what the text is reciting here is essentially everything that's already been talked about in Genesis 1 with one exception. Well, two exceptions, God himself, but God's not created, but other human beings. Human beings don't have other human beings under their feet. And the text here talks about the centrality of humanity. Even in the construction of the garden, Genesis 2 says there was no rain because there was no man there, no human being there to work the ground yet. So the rain is for the benefit of humanity. Humanity is not incidental to the rest of the creation. So the the language here is language of inheritance, which is going to become really important uh, later on in Scripture. And that's something really difficult for most of us in the modern Western world to really understand, because when we think about inheritance, we tend to think about something that belongs to really rich people. His inheritance is uh, this, uh, this set of stocks and bonds from his, his wealthy parents, or her inheritance is that Bentley that she's driving around Malibu. We think of it in those terms, or we think of it in terms of something that's just kind of incidental. Uh, to life. Aunt Flossie died, left me this lamp as an inheritance. But that's, that's not the way that the Bible pictures inheritance. It's not just transferring stuff. And, and that's one of the reasons why when you think of, for instance, uh, Jesus telling the parable, what we call the parable of the prodigal son, the reason that that would have been so shocking and disruptive to people when they heard it is that you have the son treating it that way, as though it's a a transfer of funds into an account, and I'm going to leave, when inheritance actually is a way of life. It's a mission that includes stuff often. It it includes uh, maybe a plot of land that you've cultivated, you leave to your children to cultivate, who then leave it to their children to cultivate. Or uh, think of, for instance, Peter, James, and John. The reason that it's so surprising that uh, in Mark 1, Jesus has the authority to say, come follow me, and they drop their nets and follow him, is not just because they're, they're following someone that they have no reason to simply disrupt their lives for, but because when they drop those nets, what they're doing is essentially cutting themselves off from their, their entire source of security, and not just their source of security, but their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren as well. They're walking away from everything, from an inheritance. So Scripture is talking about all of humanity in terms of an initial mission of inheritance where human beings imaging God are to be the ones who are governing under God the rest of the creation, something that Romans 8 is going to to talk about being restored in the gospel as we are joint heirs with Christ. His inheritance becomes our inheritance as well. Now, when you think about this word dominion in some translations— that's really a terrifying word to a lot of people. And there, there's a good reason for the terror, because uh, dominion, the way that we typically think about it, 
is a sort of a rapacious or domineering or coercive sort of power. And so when some people think of dominion, what they're thinking of is uh, humanity is better than anything else out there. And because humanity has the power to do it, then humanity can do whatever they want with the rest of creation. And so it's what uh, the theologian Carl Henry used to say, a Pharaoh-like idea of dominion. But that's not the sort of dominion that, uh, that God is revealing here in Genesis 1 and, and 2. God explains here uh, in the text what he's talking about, and it's a Christ-like form of dominion. It's a dominion that, uh, as we'll see uh, later on in this text, Adam names the animals— he, he not only names the animals, he and Eve are guarding and keeping and cultivating and stewarding the garden and, and then have this calling to the rest of creation. So if you think about dominion, don't think about uh, raw power being exercised. Think about instead kingship the way that the Bible defines kingship. So think of, for instance, Solomon, who is said to, uh, at, at the height of 1 Kings, he's said to have, uh, to have all of his enemies under his feet. But the reason he does is because Solomon says, when he receives the kingdom, I'm a little child. I don't know how to go in or to come out. And what I need is wisdom. And so you see that wisdom that is, uh, is showing itself in the life of Solomon in terms of not just intelligence. I think you and I both know people who are super intelligent who are not wise at all. Uh, I, I know people who are uh, so intelligent that it would amaze anybody in the room but cannot control their appetites, uh, or their, their passions. The, the wisdom that Scripture's talking about here is a humility and an intelligence together. And it's a cultivating and a guarding of the creation that has future generations in mind. So uh, that's why God is talking about dominion and be fruitful and multiply at the same time, because this is a matter of stewardship and a matter of humility. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, the atheist thinker who, who died uh, several years ago, said it, at one point that parenthood, fatherhood, is planned obsolescence, that when you become a parent, you realize that you can see in your child the fact that eventually you are going to go away and you're going to hand the reins over to the next generation, that you're not the be-all and end-all of creation. And that can become really difficult uh, for some people when they start to realize it. That's one of the reasons why you can see sometimes even in a transition and a church, uh, I've seen people who uh, when the, the pastor is leaving and turning over responsibility to the new pastor, a sense of uh, almost sometimes a desperation that happens in the, the life of the one who is, who is going away or in any workplace. A lot of times you'll see someone, if uh, maybe she's training her replacement in the workplace, and there's this, 
the sort of Saul with David uh, sense of not just envy, but a sense of I'm losing something and I'm losing my own relevance. Well, in the natural created order uh, that, that God has designed, that sort of irrelevance and obsolescence is, is part of the creation itself. It is for future generations in view. And what that means is Richard Mao, who's a, a theologian, I really a philosopher I really respect, talks about how in creation you have a primary environment, the, the natural uh, environment that we see here. God says to Adam, I have given you all of these trees and, and all of their fruit. He has given Adam uh, the animal, or Adam is not called to clone animals or, or to design animals. So there's a primary environment, but then there's a secondary environment, which is uh, what we often think of as culture, cultivating, taking that raw material and cultivating it into something else. So you, you can think of that in terms of agriculture, which we'll see later here in, in Genesis, attending of the garden and then beyond, and also what we tend to think of as creativity, music and art and labor and work and parenting and all of those things, that they go together here. And in this sense of God imaging stewardship, it's not just the labor, it's also the rest. And that's not just true for the human beings, that's also true for the field uh, that, that human beings are given. So if you think about um, dominion, I don't even use that language of dominion usually with people who don't understand what we're talking about in terms of the Genesis text because of the connotations uh, of the word. I usually use the word cultivation or the word uh, stewardship because people get a better understanding of what you're talking about. But if you think about that idea of dominion, dominion biblically defined is not clear-cutting a forest and burning it up. I mean, that's, that's short-sighted. It is not dominion to see chains of fast food restaurants across the Grand Canyon. You don't want the Grand Canyon to look like downtown Hong Kong or Times Square in, in New York. The cultivation of the Grand Canyon means an absence of those things in the same way that in other contexts, it would mean the presence of some of those things. So it's, it's human stewardship to cultivate and also to keep. The language here is hinting toward guarding. So it could be that even here at the very beginning, there's a hint of danger. There's something on the way that uh, the man and the woman are to guard uh, the garden from. And we'll see that in Genesis 3 with the coming of this serpent. And then the rest of the Bible will talk about exactly what that means. But there's a, a sense of guarding and of cultivating that's in the purpose of humanity. Now, Again, that manifests itself in a multitude of different callings. There are all sorts of things that you're gifted to do that I'm not, and vice versa. So the picture that we see in the New Testament of the church of different gifts for the upbuilding of the same church, well, that has a reflection even before we get to the church in the creation where you have 
callings that are different, but they're toward the same goal, and that's going to be disrupted uh, to a certain degree later on by the fall. Now, why is this important? This is important because, remember, when we're talking about Genesis, when we're talking about Exodus, when we're talking about about the whole Bible, we've got to remember the plot line and where we're going, and the plot line is Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first word, the last word of the Bible. The the New Testament reveals to us, uh, for instance, in Colossians 1 and in Hebrews 1, the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact radiance of his glory. So Jesus is not the plan B for a, a project of humanity that has that has gone off the rails. Instead, God is creating all things through him and for him so that the image of God, the identity, and the mission are are seen ultimately in the life of Jesus Christ, which means that we find our identity in him, we find our mission in his mission, we find our identity in terms of our inheritance in terms of his inheritance. And what that means is that we can have a sense of calling, but we don't define ourselves in terms of our calling. That's important to us, but that's not who we are. So if you think about that tendency to think about other people in terms of their usefulness to you, how useful they are, how powerful they are. You, you can see this at a, at a dinner party where somebody's looking around the room to find the most important people uh, in the room to pay attention to. Or you can see it in terms of um, people who might say, well, I don't want to be a burden when I get older to other people, as though uh, that's, a, that's a, an aspect of shame to be dependent upon other people. It means that you have gifts and callings that are given to you, but that's not where your value is, and that's not where your identity is. I have a a friend who will talk about uh, often his uh, father, who was a doctor, and um, he was talking about how kind of distant his father was, and he he said at one point, you know, my father was not a bad guy. He was just exhausted because he never could realize that he was not his gift. And when I heard him, my friend, say that the first time, I was struck by that because I thought, that's the pattern I tend to get in as well, to think of myself simply in terms of my gift, when in Scripture, the identity comes before the calling, and the calling flows out of the identity, not the other way around. So, Jesus has the pronouncement by God, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and then he is sent out uh, into the mission that he has been given. That's true of all of us. So Genesis is, in Christ, is true of all of us. And So Genesis is giving us this picture of identity and inheritance of dignity and calling, of creatureliness, of 
a, a sense of limits and a sense of glory. So what the Scripture essentially is saying is there is a glory to humanity, but it is not an ultimate glory. It's a borrowed glory. So as we'll see later on, the universe has been created as a house for you. Yeah, but it's a borrowed house, and you're headed home. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet subscribed, uh, please do on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you, you listen to podcasts. And if you're listening on a smartphone, just swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some details that you might have missed. We'll pick up next time right here in Genesis with another first word. This is Russell Moore onward. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.